Welcome to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and fishing luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today we'll be talking with our special guest, Brad Burns. Brad Burns is a Maine fly fishing luminary and is considered a living legend in the Maine fly fishing community. In the striped bass community, Brad Burns is a household name to all striper fishing enthusiasts up and down the northeast of the United States. Brad grew up in a commercial fishing family in a small village on the coast of Maine. His focus then was saltwater fishing, especially surf casting for striped bass. In his professional endeavors, Brad owned several businesses that were very successful in the office machine industry, selling photocopy and office machines as well as computer networking systems around the greater Portland, Maine area. In the late 1980s, Brad discovered fly fishing and became an expert at taking large striped bass on flies he tied at his own vice. His first book, The L.L. Bean Fly Fishing for Striped Bass Handbook, was published in 1998 and was followed by Fly Fishing Saltwater's Finest, which he co-authored with his late friend John Cole. His new love of fly fishing expanded to freshwater species like brook trout and arctic char, and eventually to the Atlantic salmon, which has been his passion for the last 12 years. As a longtime fisheries activist, Brad has served on a number of boards and advisory commissions. He was a national board and executive committee member of the Coastal Conservation Association and is the founder and former president of Stripers Forever. He's also the U.S. Director of the Miramichi Salmon Association. Brad has received many awards for his conservation work from organizations like the Federation of Fly Fishers, Sage Fly Rods, and the Fishermen's Conservation Association of New York. Brad continues to be active in the conservation and fly fishing world and has a highly successful blog that can be found at bradburnsflyfishing.com. Brad lives with June his wife of 50 years, on the banks of the Presumpscot River, once a great Atlantic salmon river, where he still throws flies for striped bass. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome an old friend and fly fishing comrade to today's episode. Brad Burns, welcome to Flyline Podcast. Hello, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's a, such a pleasure, Brad. I've always enjoyed, over the years, uh, having conversations with you, both in the boat and at shows and just in casual encounters we've had. I, I actually figured out we've known each other for 23 years. Uh, we originally met at, uh, at a CCA banquet uh, over in uh, Brunswick at Cook's Corner, and that was the first time I was introduced to you. And uh, we've gone fishing many times in the past, and I've always thought that you uh, had a very uh, dynamic personality and, and a great conversational voice. So when I had the idea to start the podcast, uh, naturally you came right to the forefront of uh, someone that I thought would be a wonderful addition to uh, share your story. Yeah, I remember that meeting. Uh, the late, uh, our late mutual friend Steve Wilson invited us. You know, he uh, he knew how to put on quite a dinner. That was at the atrium, I think, in at Cook's Corner, and he had it. He had it full of people, and he could he could make a dollar as well as anyone, and he did a lot really for CCA. And we'll talk about CCA a little bit more because you, you had a big footprint in that as well. But Brad, I think um, it's really interesting, uh, you know, to think about your your fishing story. And you grew up uh, in Damarascotta, Maine. Am I correct in saying that? That's correct. We moved there when I was nine. I originally am from Friendship. Oh, okay. That's that's uh, interesting. But when you Moving to Damariscotta, your eyes started to look out into the sea. And, and tell us about some of your first pursuits uh, fishing in the saltwater. Well, it started in friendship, and it was 
around the docks there. You know, Friendship's a big lobster fishing town. And there were a bunch of docks down there. My grandfather was a lobsterman, and I started fishing for pollock and mackerel off the dock. And then I would go out with him in the summertime, uh, sort of a junior stern man, and uh, baiting the iron and, and fishing in between times. And uh, so I did quite a bit of that. And then when we moved to Dermascotta, I think um, all my first year or two there, I heard about striped bass. This um, Johnny Grindle, a kid that lived just up the street, had caught some striped bass the, the previous summer. And it, it, it uh, made an article in the newspaper because no one had seen a striped bass in that town in memory, you know. There were very few striped bass along the main coast in the, in the 50s. And, um, and then all of a sudden, there they were in big numbers. So we started fishing there. I, I fished largely off the bridge in town, um, caught my first striped bass there, and then just fished all, all through that area, really, the Damascotta River, the, the Sheepskit River, a lot of fishing over in Sheepskit Falls area. <clears throat> and yeah. that's, uh, that was my start in that area. And you were predominantly spin fishing or using surf tackle, or what were you using then? Well, you know, I, I had... Um, I learned to read on Outdoor Life magazine. My my grandmother on my father, uh, my mother's side was a school teacher, and she taught me to read. And my other grandmother uh, bought a subscription to Outdoor Life, which I had for forever. I read them cover to cover as they came in, so I knew about fly fishing and surf casting and things like that. But um, I did what we could do locally, and that was largely spin fishing for, for striped bass. Um, that was it. You know? Yeah. How, how did you get introduced to fly fishing? Who introduced you to fly fishing? How did you segue out of uh, spin fishing? Well, mostly through, you know, I had read about fly fishing over the years, uh, uh, a lot about it, and for different species and things, but, you know, just as entertainment, really. But I was aware of fly fishing. Uh, people in, in, in uh, Damascata, for instance, there was an Atlantic salmon fishery at the Reversing Falls in Sheepskin. And uh, I knew some of the people that, that you know, that did that. I, I wasn't really intrigued by it. You know, they would stand for hours there and, and wait in line to get out on this little point at Sheepskin Falls to, uh, to fish for salmon. And if you caught two or three in a season, it was a big deal, you know. I mean, many years they wouldn't catch any. And so that, was, that, was, that wasn't productive enough for me at that time in my life, you know. Um, <clears throat> but I, I, I was aware of the technique. And we were fishing. I was fishing with John Cole, you know, the late John Cole. Did a, you know, did a lot of writing here in Maine. And we were off Popham Beach, and we had a big school of striped bass. We could see them from the boat. We'd been fishing on them for some period of time. You could go along in the boat, looking down into the water, and, and see hundreds of really big striped bass. And if you got there at first light, and you had a live menhaden, you could throw that over and live line it and maybe get one or two, maybe not that day. They were very, very fussy. And... Uh, Anyway, uh, I thought, you know, they were feeding on they were feeding on sand eels. You could see these very small, thin fish in the water that they were chasing around from time to time. And I thought, 
If I could duplicate those, maybe I'd have a crack at them. So uh, I thought, well, uh, a fly, you know, and, and I was, I knew I had read a little bit about people catching striped bass on flies. There, there wasn't a lot of it being done, but there was some, you know. And so I went to L.L. Bean and I said, I want to try to catch a striped bass on a fly. I had, you know, um, <clears throat> I wasn't sure exactly what I needed, but uh, I asked them for the, the right stuff, and they, I bought a, a, a big Fluger medalist reel, the biggest you could get at the time, which I think was a fourteen ninety eight, and a um, oh everybody had these things at the time, but this kind of a reddish fiberglass blank that was made by Saint Croix, Saint Croix fly rod, and um, and it was I think an eight weight. And, and so I got set up and of course I couldn't cast. I didn't, I didn't realize that, that fly casting itself is a sport, you know, at, at, at the time. And so I went out with this, with this rig and tried to, to catch these fish and I, I got nowhere at all with it initially, but it got me, it got me started with fly casting. Do you remember what the fly line was that they provided you with? It, it was made by, by scientific anglers and, um, was it a sinking line, Brad, or was it a floating well, I line? I think the first one that I had was a sink tip. I think that they felt that's what I needed in salt water, and, and it was a sink tip. Of course, I didn't even know that the difference between purely floating lines and sink tips or sinking lines. I mean, I had no real knowledge of that, of all of those things, you know. Uh, yeah, and I mean, casting a sink tip line uh, is a fate worse than death if you've never cast a fly rod before, because that's just a technique in itself, as you know from casting heavy shooting heads. You you have to you have, there's definitely a cadence to it. Yeah, I've done plenty of it since, <laughs> and it took a while to took a while to catch on. You know, so you probably started to have some success with a fly rod, or else you wouldn't have stayed with it. Well, you know, it wasn't with striped bass initially. Um, I, I I saw it as a separate undertaking, and 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 I thought, well, I've got to learn to cast this thing if I'm ever going to do anything. And I started doing a little bit of. Uh, I, I didn't want it to cut into my productive fishing time, and so I started um, going down to uh, the Agunquit River in the fall and trying to catch these. Uh, Salters, these sea-run brown trout that they, the state was stocking in there, may still be stocking in there, for all I know. And I did get a couple, um, and you know, and I, I learned to cast there gradually, you know, and I practiced on the lawn a little bit, and I would run into somebody. I remember one day down there running into a whole school of pollock right by that little bridge down the, off the beach, and and catching some, and and I got to enjoy it, and it was challenging you know and uh so i i continued to do it then i i got invited uh to go tarpon fishing down in key west mm -hmm. and i was just i had just really gotten a little better at it and um and i, I was out on the this with this jeffrey cardenas this guide and um we had a bunch of tarpon in front of us and i was able to get a fly out far enough to to uh to, to succeed, we hooked a bunch of fish. It was, you know, incredibly exciting. Um, and in the course of talking with uh, Cardenas, every time that, that I would fish, like if we lost a tarpon or released a tarpon, or we were going to move to a new spot, he he would 
take the rod from me and make one cast himself and reel his line back up very carefully. And I think it was, he loved to cast himself. I think it was an opportunity to throw a cast, you know. Maybe he hoped he'd catch one, I don't know. But in any case, um, in talking with him about, and he was a lot better than I was at it. And in, in talking with him about it, he told me that uh, he had these um, tournament casters that would come fishing with him from time to time. And that some of them could throw a 12-weight floating line with a fly uh, 100 feet into a breeze. And I thought, my God, you know, the whole fly line, you know, into the wind. And I said, I'm going to try to learn how to do that. And, and at that point, I really got serious about fly fishing. And it became the way I wanted to fish uh, almost entirely. It just... It just replaced everything. I'd been a serious surf caster, done a lot of surf casting, and 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 a bait caster. I mean, we used spinning rods and and bait casting uh, reels um, interchangeably. You know, I, the, the heavy lures like a big rig deal. I would cast with a bait casting reel so it didn't cut your finger off. You know, and and plug fishing I would do with a spinning rod. But once I started fly casting, every time I caught a fish on anything but a fly rod, I just felt like I had missed an opportunity to have caught that fish on a fly rod. And I just didn't want it to go about it any other way. So there must be uh, a ramping up of your striper fishing because you ultimately wrote the L.L. Bean Striper Handbook and... Uh, you must have really just taken a deep dive. I remember just you and I fishing years ago, you were telling me how you got pretty serious about fishing. You had a place, where was it? Or do you still have a place, Brad, down in Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard? Or Well, I had a place on Cape Cod for a long Cape time. Cod. And yeah. uh, I had had a little knowledge of Cape Cod since I was a child, really. My parents took a, a vacation down there with our family in the in the late 50s. In, and it was in Sandwich, and it was right on this beach. And I remember these people launching a dory through the surf and going out fishing. And anyway, I and then in college, I went to college outside of Boston, and uh, we would go down to the Cape weekends and go fishing. You know, I, I would drive down there sometimes after classes. I would just drive down there and fish for a few hours during the night and drive back. It was a little over an hour to get down there walk along the canal and throw plugs out there. So after college, and once I, you know, started really as a working adult and, and, and able to go fishing again and had a little bit of money in my pocket, I started surf casting and, and going down to Martha's Vineyard. And we would go out there and spend the whole weekend, you know, essentially stay up all almost the whole weekend, you know, a little sleeping in the car during the day on Saturday, but fish Friday and Saturday nights. It was tiring, to say the least. And uh, we would, uh, this friend of mine, Phil Perino, and I, we would barely make it back to Maine sometimes, you know. And uh, I, I, my wife's family was in Massachusetts, and I thought, well, you know, if I could if I could convince my wife to drive us down there and I could drop her off with her folks, you know, then she could drive us back and (laughs) (laughs) she'd get some sleep in then that was my plan and it almost worked we we bought a house they we bought a house in um falmouth massachusetts right across from martha's vineyard 
And um, I think, and her parents stayed in it in the summertime and, and well, actually half the year or more. And I thought that, uh, that that would really work out, but she, she didn't particularly care for, for that setup. And uh, <laughs> so we never got very many of those weekends, but I, I went anyway, we would, we would go down and uh, there was a hotel in, in uh, Vineyard Haven. And I negotiated with the guy a little bit for a, a promise of at least, I forget what, 20 nights during the fall, which we would pay for up front and then use as we needed. And uh, so we got a pretty good deal. And we would we would move in on Saturday morning after fishing all night Friday night and just put towels in over all the, the windows so we could sleep during the day. <laughs> and, and, and we fished every end of that island, you know, and uh, learned it very well. Learned it uh, like a lot of the locals know it. And we caught a, a lot of bass. But I still owned the house on the Cape. Just my wife just didn't come, just didn't drive us down to Cape Cod. And, and eventually I started fishing there on, on the Cape out of a small boat, fishing in Woods Hole a lot out of an aluminum boat and fishing off the, the local beaches and the salt ponds on the south side of the Cape. And it was a lot more convenient, you know, and, and I just got to know it. And, and, and that eventually replaced my surf casting life. Um, I, I, I sort of graduated in boats. And that was about the time that fly fishing for striped bass re- really took off. That was in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. That, um, you know, before then, if you went in, let's say, 85 um, you went down to Martha's Vineyard and, and you went out surf casting or just fishing around the island. You might see a couple of fly fishermen, especially during the day, fishing for false albacore or bonito from the from the uh, jetty down at Manepsha. But it was really uh, still at that time um, uh, unusual to see a fly rod fisherman. Uh, most of it was still spin fishing, a lot of boat fishing, trolling, tackle, that kind of thing. And striped bass, there were just a hand, there were very few striped bass around. They were just great big striped bass. And uh, they were old fish that, had, that were from the 1960s, late 50s and 60s year classes that had been very good. But there, there were very few schoolies at all. Everybody was concerned about where that fishery was going. Um, then all of a sudden it started to turn around, you know, basically they stopped uh, the commercial fishing. There was a moratorium. The striped bass came back to a large degree, started to come back. And and they showed up down there in, in pretty good numbers earlier than they did up here. Uh, and, and that all started in the mid 80s. And by the late 80s, uh, 87, 88, there was some really excellent striped bass fishing, and it spawned this whole saltwater fly rotting industry. Uh, and I mean, it, it had been nothing before that. And then all, all these shows that you see, like the big show in Somerset, New Jersey, and the, the show in Marlboro, Massachusetts, those didn't exist in the 70s. Those all came out of striped bass fishing. It, that's uh, that resurgence in striped bass. It seems like I remember at the time, Brad, that a lot of my freshwater clients that I was taking on were, 
you know, guys like yourself that had really gotten into the Striper thing. And the Kennebec, of course, was really coming back. It was having a, a birth, not even a rebirth, but a birth of the Striper runs. And all the guys, you know, were getting licenses and you could do no wrong to catch Stripers, you know, up and down the coast of Maine all of a sudden, thanks to uh, some conservation efforts. And so, you know, here you are putting in all this time, you know, learning about this. And then did, did L.L. Bean approach you or did you start to write a book and then pitch it to them? Tell us, tell us uh, about how the book came about. Here's how I think the book came about. You know, striped bass, you know, when this, this, before they came back, when they just had these big fish, it was not a mystery to a lot of us. We knew that, that they had been fished to death. You know, there'd been a lot of commercial fishing on, on the larger fish. And, and, and those were the breeders, and they were being removed from the population. And the Chesapeake, and these fish all came up here from Chesapeake Bay. And that population was, was really depressed, and we needed some conservation measures. So we started, you know, I remember I met this guy, Rip, I actually met his father first, Mac Cunningham. But I met Rip Cunningham, who was the publisher of Saltwater Sportsman. I met him through his father, and, and we started doing a little fishing together. And I said to Rip, I said, you know, uh, is there anybody anywhere that's had any success in getting any conservation measures through? You know, that from what I could see, the, uh, the stranglehold that commercial fishing interests had on saltwater fishing, fisheries management was complete, you know. And he said, oh, there's these guys down in Texas called the Coastal Conservation Association at that time it was called the Gulf Coast Conservation Association, has had some real success. And um, so anyway, to make a long story shorter, a number of us started the, the, a chapter of the Coastal Conservation Association up here in New England, the New England Coast Conservation Association. In, in trying to get that going, I saw L.L. Bean as a terrific partner to have and uh, I, approached, uh, I approached them and got the name of this man, Brock Atfell. And so I, I, I called him up and asked to have lunch with him. And uh, Brock was, uh, at least uh, at, at first meeting, was a sort of stern, tall, uh, sort of German heritage kind of guy. He, he actually had, in an early life, had been a scientist uh, in the oil business. And... Um, but he loved fishing. He'd always fished his whole life. And so he was running this. It was sort of a retirement job. And I, I met Brock, and, uh, it, and we started talking about fishing. And it turns out that he had had a little experience on the Kennebec River. And this Kennebec River fishery was just coming on like crazy at that time. You know, the, it, to, to those that that lived through it and I probably had as good a ringside seat for it really as anybody. I mean I started fishing on the Kennebec in um in in the almost the mid seventies, I guess. Yes, it was the mid seventies. And with um Earl Kelly, who lived on uh this point of land in Bodenham, Abigadaza Point, and he had a little guiding business in the summertime. He was a school teacher and he took people out striper fishing. And uh, I met him and we became friends and I went fishing with him some. I mean, he would fish all summer. You have 30 or 40 days of guiding in the summertime and they would land 25 fish, you know, but they were all 
fish that were 25 pounds and larger, or virtually all. You know, I don't think I never heard of him with a 50, but he had a lot of big fish. And it was almost, he did some plug casting, but mostly live eels. And there were many days when in the Phippsburg area, during that, that, that whole area that was so good, you know, a mile or two up and down river from the, the, the church in Phippsburg, um, he would be the only boat, the only boat fishing. And when he went back to school in September, there was no one, you know. And, and that's how that was um, right up through the, the early 80s. And, and, and I started fishing over there myself and uh, doing a lot of it. And, and I inherited his success. And, you know, I would have 30 or 40 or 50 of these striped bass that were averaged 35 pounds probably. With, with uh, Some years we had days with multiple 50-pound fish, you know. Um, it, it was really incredible. But th there were no little fish at all, and you knew you were fishing on these these old fish, you know. So, Brad, yeah. you you were having that lunch with Brock from LL Bean, and you probably started sharing some of these stories about right. the, your success on the Kennebec. Um, did that start to kind of spark the idea to to write a book? It came a little uh, a little bit later. You know, we had a, a couple of really great years of fishing there, Brock and I, and you know he had a small boat and. And, and, and they were really heady times. That whole fly fishing thing was growing like crazy, you know. People were really starting to get into it. And um, there, there was really, there was not much there at that moment in, in terms of material on striped bass fly fishing, even though a lot of people were starting to do it. And, um, I, you know, I don't remember exactly how it came about, uh, but I said to... I think Brock may have said that they were, they had Nick Lyons, who was really well known at the time as a, uh, as a writer himself, but mostly as a publisher, Lyons and Burford, publisher of sporting books, that uh, they were going to do a little series of how-to books. And um, I said, you know, how about letting me write one on striped bass? And so anyway, um, they, they hired me to do that. Um, and we wrote the L.O. Bean Fly Fishing for Striped Bass book. And, you know, it was just a terrific success. It was unbelievable how many of those we sold. And uh, I, I don't think I think we sold more of those than I've sold of all other books I've written combined since then. The guys at the store told me that if they. If, if, if they could get enough of them, if they could just put a big stack on the counter, you could hardly keep up with it. You know, every few men that would go through there on, on in the summertime would buy a copy of that book. You know, it was 20 bucks and, and, and striped bass fishing was incredibly popular. And that whole striped bass saltwater fly rod thing was just taking off. Yeah, and I, I read the book when I was probably in my late 20s, early 30s, and all of all of my clients were reading it or had read it. And as a result, you know, as I mentioned in the introduction of who Brad Burns is, I think it was because of that book, Brad, that you became a household name in striper fishing. Anybody that, especially in the in the fly rod world, and um, I wanted to just make a comment about your, you talked about fly casting, and um, you know, I've had the great pleasure of, you know, flag fishing with a lot of different people over the years. And, uh, I think that Brad, you're one of the only individuals I know that I've stood in a boat with that could throw it 10 feet past where I could, you're, you're a fantastic caster. And so talking about fishing with, um, 
Jeffrey Cardenas down in, in Key West, Florida. I've had a number of clients that fish with him. And I think that casting a 12 weight rod, or in your case, casting a 450 grain shooting head for a school of stripers, you really learn where, you know, how to add the power and power application. Uh, and it shows in your fly casting. And I'm sure that you still really enjoy casting a long line, um, you know, to Atlantic salmon as well, because that's definitely an advantage. Mm. Well, I do like fly casting, and, you know, I'm 72 years old. Joints and tendons and things aren't what they were, and I can tell you that a 450-grain or 550-grain head and a 10- or 11-weight rod put a lot of pressure on things, you know. Yeah. And uh, gradually, all of my friends that from, from that era that, that did a lot of that fishing with me have developed shoulder or elbow problems, you know. It just uh, sort of comes along, you know. But uh, you you know you work on technique to try to to minimize that you know and these great big long arm motions that Lefty Cray kind of made famous that a lot of us had adopted at the time um, those are really one way to get in a lot of trouble you know and I just learned to keep my arms closer to my body and use body weight more to uh, to to move the rod than than and than just pressuring it out there with wrists and elbows and things, you know. Uh, and salmon fishing, really, um, a, an awful lot of the salmon fishing I do now is with a uh, with a spay rod, and that was sort of uh, just another level of, I mean, of, of fly fishing. I got into that uh, when I started going up to the Miramichi. Now, uh, right around. Uh, 2002, 20 years ago, and uh, 21 years ago now. And and that was a, a big learning curve for me. Uh, I didn't have a lot of people locally, uh, really at that time, almost nobody locally to learn it from. You had to just sort of, um, and, and there were some videos around, pick it up and watch it. And that has evolved uh, a lot. Uh, over the last, uh, the Scandinavian influence with the shooting heads and so forth. And so I've tried to be a, a bit of a student of that. Um, and I've gotten good enough at it so that, um, so that, that and I, I'm not, you can always improve. We all uh, can improve. But I'm more interested in the fishing than the casting now. Yeah, I, I always say that uh, I think that fly casting is one of the most beautiful extensions of human movement. It's a fun thing to watch, and it's a fun thing to study and learn, and uh, we both really enjoy I mean, I enjoy casting as much as catching and, and whatnot. It's just beautiful to do it. But, Brad, I think we've come to a good point to take a, a short break, uh, and then we'll come back, and I want to talk about some of your conservation work. Okay. On this Flyline Flashback, we discuss the history of the Maine Marine Patrol. The Maine Marine Patrol is a maritime police service in the state of Maine. It claims to be the oldest law enforcement agency in Maine. In 1867, Maine first employed commissioners of fisheries. These were law enforcement officers charged with enforcement of fishing regulations in the state. By 1870, the title of this office had been changed to fisheries warden. Over the next 60 years, the number of fisheries wardens employed by Maine increased to more than 30. Following World War II, the title of the office was again changed to Coastal Warden. Coastal Wardens were organized into the Coastal Warden Service. 
1978, the force was reconstituted under the current name of Maine Marine Patrol. The Maine Marine Patrol is responsible for enforcement of state and federal fishing regulations in coastal and tidal areas of Maine, providing maritime security inside Maine territorial waters and coordinating maritime search and rescue operations. It also supports the Maine State Police in tactical boardings of vessels at sea or in port. Through an agreement with the United States Customs and Border Protection, the Maine Marine Patrol assists in border protection in the Gray Zone, an area including Machias Seal Island, which is the object of a two-century-old territorial dispute between the United States and Canada. Since 2015, the Maine Marine Patrol has quadrupled the number of officers assigned to the Gray Zone due to a perceived increase in the potential for violence in this area. And now, back to the second part of our show. I want to just segue, because this is a big part. I remember when you and I were fishing on the Rapid River, you were telling me about your early exploits in Labrador and how you transitioned from Labrador fishing to Atlantic salmon fishing. Am I right in saying that? Was that kind of the chronology of it? Yeah, well, what what happened was, I mean, it was striped bass. You know, I was doing all the striped bass fishing, and I'd gotten better with a fly rod. And we got to the late 80s in the late 80s, and, and I had this friend, Lad Heldenbrand. I don't know if you ever met Lad before. No. Nope. He's gone now, but he knew everybody. You know, you could go into a room with Lad and in a room full of people, and in a few minutes, he would be standing beside whoever he wanted to stand beside and talking to him about whatever he wanted to talk to him about. He was just, uh, he had a way of getting things. He knew everybody in the room before he was done, you know. And they all knew him. He was just good at getting to meet people. And somehow, I don't even remember how I met Lad initially, but we started doing some fishing together. And he started telling me these stories about Labrador. And he, uh, the guy that used to own the surplus store in Portland was his friend. And that guy had a float plane and they used to go up to Labrador and they became friendly with the people that were developing the Churchill Falls power thing. He had videos of per Churchill Falls before they built the power project. And um, they, they, they fished all over the place up there. They, they got to know this guy, Dick Budgel, who was guiding. They would bring these big investors in from, from Europe and things and from Texas or whatever, and Budgel would take them fishing for brook trout in different places around Labrador. They had a helicopter at their disposal. So anyway, um, Lad was telling me all these stories about Labrador, and he said, why don't we go up there and go fishing? I said, gee, that sounds great. I'd love to do that. You know, I don't know anything about it. He said, and Labrador was really, and still is, of course, but was really uh, a real wilderness. You know, there was very little going on up there. Um, and so we went up to uh, Moosehead Lake. He set the whole thing up. We went up to Moosehead Lake and to and met a guy that, that he knew well by the name of Jack Hoffbrow. Jack owned Jack's Flying Service. To yep, I know it well. Yeah, and we, uh, Jack, uh, J Jack could care less about fishing, really. He had a little spinning rod, and he'd fish for a couple of minutes wherever we went. But he was all about the plane and the flying. That's uh, Flying around Labrador was just something he loved doing. And I'll, I will never get it. I've done a lot of float plane flying by now, but I nothing like, I'll never do again what we did. And we, we got in this plane and, and, and we flew up across northern Maine, landed in the St. John River. 
and walked up over the hill to customs. And Hofbrau talked to them for a couple of minutes, and they said, that's good, Chris, we could have had anything in that plane. <laughs> right. And we went back down the hill, got in the plane, taxied under that bridge, and took off. And it was, it was the first time I saw a lot of things. We went right by on that trip, right by uh, Katahdin, and somebody had just flown into the side of it a week or two before that. And he said, oh, yeah, that's right where that happened. He said, I know exactly how they get too close and they got sucked in by this or that. And we flew across these clear cuts in northern Maine. I had never seen a clear cut. You know, I remember uh, <clears throat> oh, Clint Townsend telling me, he said, you know, the, the people that uh, – feel about clear cuts based on whether they've ever seen one or not. You know, when you've seen a clear cut, you don't like them. You know, that's all there was to it. And you just understand somehow that it's not a good thing. You know, it just doesn't look right, does it? It doesn't no, look right. You look up there and you just see all this acres upon acres, miles even of forest just laid flat, you know, and it just, wow, you know. Anyway, so we flew up, flew across the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Landed in Seven Islands, this big float plane basin. Then we took the, uh, followed the railway, the, the railroad. That's how they had gotten up there. That's a whole other story. One story leads to another, you know. This is the problem with getting me going on this stuff. But we, we, we followed the railroad. I was in the back of the plane. There were three of us, Lad and myself and Hofbrau. And <clears throat> Lad was in charge of dispensing food. And I was in charge of figuring out where we were on the map. They'd say, here's the railway, and you would look for mountain peaks and lakes and try, try to keep your progress because it was all visual flight rules. And if you, you, couldn't, you couldn't stay in the air without being able to see the ground. If, you, if, if uh, visual was obscured, you had to land somewhere. You, you were supposed to. Were you following the tracks to Shefferville? Is that where you were headed? It, yes. The tracks went to Shefferville. We uh, weren't going quite as far as that. We peeled off and landed in a place called Flower Lake. Yep. And Flower Lake is really the headwaters of that river that flows down into Goose Bay. And I forget if that's the Muscopy or what it is. But at any, in any case, that, that's Churchill River, I guess. And so that's where we were. And we fished around there for a couple of days. And we hadn't been fishing five minutes when we caught these great big brook trout, you know. And I'd never seen anything quite like them. I'm still, I've got a footer-mounted brook trout up on my wall here, this eight-pound brook trout that I caught on that trip. And it was just amazing. You know, I just had never seen a fish like that. For the, um, uh, for the listening audience, uh, footer mount is a Dave footer mount. Dave is one of the uh, most highly regarded uh, uh, fish carvers. Not only was he a taxidermist, but he was also a reproduction uh, carver. And so is yours a carving, uh, Brad, or is it actually well, a skin mount? It's a skin mount, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. old school, so... Yeah, it's a beautiful thing, and uh, it, it, I had it done now. That's it's got to be forty years ago, almost going on forty years ago, and it looks like the day I picked it up in his shop. You know, so we just um, lost we just lost Dave Footer in the last year and a half. Now I don't know if you uh, heard that, Brad. Yeah, I, I did. I couldn't. I don't remember how far back it was, and it was his wife that was sick for so long, Polly. But I guess she's okay now, is she not? I, I've heard the same exactly. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he's 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 made a huge footprint in, uh, in terms of the taxidermy history, especially recently. 
Um, So, Brad, uh, you know, I know you and I could talk about Labrador forever. I actually went to Labrador for the very first time uh, this last summer in 2022, and I had the same similar experience that you had where it just seemed like there was a trophy fish behind every rock. And as anyone listening to the podcast, if you're interested in having a trip of a lifetime, Labrador is it. Uh, I would like to spend some time uh, segueing and talking about your conservation work because I think that that helps to define who Brad uh, Burns is. Uh, Tell me about how Coastal Conservation Association started to kind of take uh, roots in Maine and your work with that. Well, um, I think I said earlier in the interview that I had asked my friend, my new friend, Rip Cunningham, if he, you know, because he was a publisher of Saltwater Sportsman magazine, you knew a lot of people in the industry. And I said, you know, is there anybody anywhere that's having any success with, uh, you know, going up against the commercial interests? Because that was that was what you were up against uh, in in saltwater fishery conservation. And he talked about this Coastal Conservation Association in Texas. And so we approached them and about starting a chapter up here, and we did. Uh, and I spent quite a few years in that. Um, we tried to build chapters. They, their, their concept was to build chapters in each state. And even within the state, you'd have a state chapter, certainly, but then they, they could be smaller uh, chapters in some of the cities. All we were looking for was, was one in Maine and one in Massachusetts out of Boston, and one in New Hampshire, because you wanted to have it by the state, because that's where the decision process was, it was in state government. So uh, anyway, we spent a lot of time at that and, and built a fairly good-sized organization. At one time, Maine had, oh man, I forget now, but well over a 1,000 members, fourteen or 1,500 members, and dues-paying members in Maine. We, we had more than that in Massachusetts, um, and I think think around two and a half thousand we had it we had it going quite well you know uh, unfortunately I mean the, the our big push was to make striped bass a game fish we wanted to end commercial fishing for striped bass I'd like to say it would be easy to say that we were successful in Maine, but striped bass became for game fish in Maine before CCA. Uh, I testified uh, the, the Commissioner of Marine Resources put in a bill to make striped bass a game fish in like 1984 or 5. It was all based around trying to rebuild the native spawning stock in the Kennebec. And I testified at that hearing on the, at the request of the Commissioner of Marine Resources, and there was no one in opposition. There was no one else for it even. I mean, it was just, just me in, in front of this committee, and it was sort of a, a rubber stamp. Uh, there was no commercial fishery for striped bass in Maine. Just no, they, they weren't a dependable enough fishery to have one, so there was no opposition. So we just got it passed, and uh, we were very lucky, you know. Uh, but we ran into a pretty fair amount of opposition in, in Massachusetts and uh, Rhode Island and New Hampshire and in other states where they tried to get CCA going, and and ultimately weren't successful. And and uh, also, well, anyway, CCA just eventually faded away in, in up here. There was some, there was some conflicts in the way that, um, that we were trying to, to run it compared to Texas's model. 
Um, I wanted to to do it the way Texas had suggested. Um, we had um, we, we we get a little too deep, I think, into our executive director here in Maine, and and, and it lost a lot of its volunteer support, and eventually came apart. And uh, some of us that were disgruntled over the whole thing started a group called Stripers Forever, which uh, corresponded with the beginning of the of the internet uh, dominance and email uh, advocacy work. And we had a very successful start with that in Rhode Island. In Rhode Island, they were trying to liberalize the conservation regulations in favor of the commercial interests. That's a long story. But we uh, were able to stop it by the use of the Internet. We had people emailing into the governor in Rhode Island in opposition and sending sending receipts for their days paid with a charter boat captain out of Point Judah. Uh, and saying they'd never step foot in Rhode Island again if they did this and so forth. And it worked very well. We were successful with it. And we tried to parlay that into an Internet organization that used email to advocate for striped bass game fish. It was a very popular thing. And we had had a lot of success in New Jersey. We had quite a bit of success in New York, in Massachusetts, and in Maine. And at one point... Uh, Stripers Forever had, I think, around 15,000 members, fairly good-sized organization. Uh, I spent a lot of years at that. It's still going. Um, a young man from New York, Taylor Varver, is, is the president now. I just resigned last year. Um, we searched for uh, a new president for, for some time. Yeah, no, I think, Brad, that there, I mean, anybody that is an avid striper fisherman, uh, recreationally fishing, fly rod fishing uh, in New England owes a great debt of gratitude for the work that you and 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 your your team with Stripers Forever ha- has done in the last. I'd say what Stripers Forever has been around for twenty years, wouldn't you say, Brett? Started in two thousand and two, so yeah, uh, yeah. yeah it's just a uh, uh, twenty one years, um, and like I say, it, it's still going. And even though we were not able to make striped bass a game fish in some of these other places, just couldn't get through the, 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 the commercial influences in, in some of those states, we did blunt some of the damage that they were doing. And, um, and, and I think we did. We did make it a game fish in federal waters. One of uh, our guys uh, knew uh, George Bush, uh, Mm-hmm. And we were able to, to, to talk with him, and he signed an executive order that, that prohibited commercial fishing for striped bass in, in the EEZ, in federal waters, making it sort of a sanctuary for the larger fish. And that's been an important thing, uh, as it turns out. So Stripers Forever has done a lot of good. So I, I guess I, I don't know a whole lot about the um – migratory habits of striped bass, but I think of them as being coastal dwellers and not really going into that federal water. Am I incorrect in my thinking on that? Well, that was whatever, that was, that was chapter and verse and uh, what everybody believed and read for a long time. Uh, there were always some voices that were saying, well, you know, there's a, there's a population out there in the EEZ and, and there always has been one. The um, one of the, the big ones is an overwintering down off the North Carolina Capes. A lot of fish would be quite a distance offshore down there. The 
Noah did a lot of research on that, you know, 15 years ago and found a lot of big striped bass overwintering out in the EEZ. But they've done some tagging work in recent years and they have found that there's actually quite a bit of interchange between deep offshore waters and the inshore. They're the same fish. Right. Some of these fish will go offshore and come back inshore uh, at different times during their migration. And um, so they're, they're not exclusively an inshore fish. Well, Brad, uh, one of the other things I'd like to talk about with you, because I think it's something that really makes your heart go pitter-pat, is your, uh, your affinity for Atlantic salmon. I caught my very first Atlantic salmon in front of your camp on the Miramichi River with your guide, Willie, back in the day. And I caught two in the same day, and that was the, those are the last two Atlantic salmon I ever caught. But you, uh, you got bit by the bug, and I'd love for you to share your, um, your introduction to Atlantic salmon and how it ultimately led to your work that you're doing today with the Miramichi Salmon Association. Yeah. Well, I sometimes think it probably depends on where you're brought up. I mean, if you, you were brought up in the banks of the Miramichi and fished for Atlantic salmon, that you, there are lots of people where that was their fish really throughout their whole life. But a lot of them are not like that. They would be more like, say, Ted Williams was, where he had been a fisherman his whole life, and then he was introduced to the Miramichi, and eventually Atlantic salmon fishing took over his interests. I think Atlantic salmon, uh, this fish can be large. You can catch them on dry flies. You can catch them on wet flies. There's a great mystique about them migrating out into the ocean and coming back into the rivers. The places are beautiful, the river moves, the fish take lies beside rocks and then move up the stream. And there's just a, a lot of wonderful, beautiful things to it and a lot of heritage to it. That, you know, when, when you're young, it's hard to appreciate it as much as when you get a little older and you see what, you know, what a great piece of nature these creatures represent. And it started with my fishing in Labrador. Um, I, I got invited on a, you know, in going up there trout fishing, you'd hear about some of the salmon rivers. And I got invited to a couple of trips. I remember going to the, the Big River one time and uh, going to uh, the Flowers River another time and some different places. And it was always fun. And I always enjoyed catching them. But it, it, I didn't really get seriously bitten by the bug. I was, I guess, too much involved in striped bass fishing, you know. Um, and when, when striped bass in the early 2000s started to go downhill again, you know, we had this, this wonderful bounce in striped bass, that great fishery in the Kennebec and up and down the East Coast. And then it started to tail off and it became apparent that we weren't going to be able to, to stop the, uh, the Atlantic State Marine Fishery Commission from ruining the striped bass fishery, which essentially they've done. I mean, there are still striped bass. You can still go fishing and catch striped bass, and it has its good moments. But for those of us that saw it as, as it could be in the 90s, you know, it's just a tragedy. You know, there are, there are so few. Um, and <clears throat> so I was in that situation. I had this house on Cape Cod. I was going down there fishing all the time, all down through the Elizabeth Islands, Cuddy Hunk, all that stuff. And... Um, Again, this fellow I mentioned earlier, Rip Cunningham, uh, was a member at the Black Brook Salmon Club. And he, he'd been down fishing with me on, on the Cape. And 
in October, we had some great fishing, and, and he invited me to come up and fish at the Black Brook Salmon Club. And so I did, and the fishing was lousy. The water was hot. It was in July. Uh, but I got a little look at that whole culture, at the, at the camps and the, the history of the place. And we took a little ride down the Canes River. Uh, and um, <clears throat> you're calling me a, a living legend. That's last time I heard that phrase, I called Emery Brophy that. He was a guy that uh, I met at Blackbrook Salmon Club. He was a... He, his his father had been a very important figure at Miramichi and Canes River fishing. So I anyway, I, I, uh, I get invited on this trip. Fishing was poor, but I got these great experiences on the river. And while I was there, um, they, the, the, right next door to them, a, an outfit called Wade's Fishing Lodge, which had been an extremely important organization on the river at one time for many, many years. Very famous place. Was uh, it had sold out when the last of the Wades running it got old. They sold it to some of the members who formed a club, and the club was not getting along with each other. Uh, some some poor management rules, and and they were breaking up and selling it and selling it in pieces. Black Brook was buying a piece, and the guy from Wades that was in charge of of, of negotiating that came over for a a discussion, and he looked around as a group of us standing there, and he said, we got a couple of pools downriver left that we're trying to sell. Any of you fellows interested in buying some fishing water on the Miramichi? And I said, well, you know, I might be. He said, well, he said, here, he said, let me get your number, and I'll call you after, after this and um, invite you up to take a look, you know, talk to you more about it. So they sent me a brochure and called me, and I came back up in September. This was in, in July. And I came back up in September and, and went fishing and caught a couple of salmon and, 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 and saw this water. And the idea, you know, of, of having a camp in this remote spot with these big, beautiful fish, and fishing in those days, in, in, the, in the early 80s, was pretty good, you know. I mean, early 80s, early 2000s was pretty good. The Miramichi was on quite an uptick. And uh, so I bought this camp and just started fishing there. And I thought, well, I'll just fish there a little bit in the fall, a little bit in the height of the season. And, and it really won't interfere with my place on the Cape and my striper fishing. And I ended up selling the place on the Cape and, and, and basically uh, turning most of my energies into Atlantic salmon. And, you know, it seems that, that I'm destined for this after a, a, a few really great years in that, that fishery started to um, have problems and uh, of, of various kinds. And there's a big conservation effort underway by people up there. And I got involved with that. And eventually, um, you know, the Miramichi Salmon Association, of which Ted Williams, the baseball player, was life member number two. Um, they have a, they've had a very active organization in the United States um, since they were formed in the 50s. And so I got in, into that. I was invited to a dinner down in Boston shortly after I started going up there. And I became a member. And uh, the last uh, couple of years, I've been the president of their U.S. operation, which basically means I spend most of my winter trying to raise money for it, you know. 
Yeah, and so yeah. you guys recently had a banquet uh, just last weekend, and it sounds like it was a success. Yeah, oh, yes. Yeah, it was uh, not, uh, we didn't have thousands of people and so forth, but uh, it was successful, and uh, we, we raised a good deal of money uh, for the organization, which is the, the big purpose of it. Uh, got some new members uh, also. And, um, you know, I'm retired now, and I, I spend a month up there in June and early July, and then I spend another month up there in September and early October, and I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to it. You know, um, it's, it's, it's wonderful to start the day thinking, how do I catch these fish? Where do I go? What do I do? And, and, and that's when you're in camp, you're just dedicated to that concept, fishing for Atlantic salmon. You know? Yeah, so for the listening audience, uh, the Miramichi River is very different than, uh, and, and really fishing in New Brunswick is very different than fishing in uh, Maine or anywhere in the United States where there is actually private water. You can float through a pool, but you cannot just uh, pull your canoe up uh, unless it's public land. So Brad owns, so what, three pools? Uh, is, is it three pools now, Brad? Well, what is a pool? And what right, is, yeah. yeah. I've got four pieces of property there. I've got a camp well up the Canes called Mahoney Brook. One, Canes is the biggest tributary of the Miramichi, and it's known as a fall river. But the, I have a pool in the lower part called the Brophy Pool, which has a big cold brook that comes into it. It's a big holding pool for salmon, and the, a lot of the Canes run accumulates there in August and September, and it can provide some really good fishing. Then I've got the Campbells and Canes pools, both sides of the river, where you fished back in the early 2000s. And, and then a few years ago, um, a, another club called the Doctors Island Club was breaking up. They were down the river, and the president of the club was a friend of mine. And they, the club didn't really totally break up, but they, uh, they were struggling for membership, as a lot of those clubs are, and they wanted to, to get rid of a lot of their overhead. So they, they, uh, they got rid of their main lodge and and home pool in a place called doctor's island and so i acquired that so we got a couple of these big jet canoes and we move around to these different places and uh it's a lot of fun um you know uh, the uh, there's a lot of public water in new brunswick the local people have first of all a lot of the river is owned by residents of new brunswick you know a very high percentage um, but there's a lot that is just plain public, owned by what they call the crown, you know, the, by the, um, the government. And, and New Brunswick residents can fish there. Um, U.S. residents have to have a guide to fish in the province of New Brunswick on salmon rivers. It's, a, it's to protect the jobs. It's what it's all about. Which is good. I think that's a, a good policy. It also keeps uh, honest men honest. And, well, you're um, a guide. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Thank you for recognizing that. But Brad, you know, I mean, you mentioned earlier how I referred to you as a living legacy. And I think when we look at the body of your work with uh, writing the Striped Bass Handbook for L.L. Bean, um, your, your, your tremendous body of work you did with CCA and, uh, and, and naturally, uh, you know, your brainchild of starting Stripers Forever and, and turning that into what it has become. Uh, and then segueing finally, you know, now and with your work with the Miramichi at Salmon Association, I don't think that any 
any reasonable listener would would uh, consider you anything less than a living legendary. And it's been a complete honor to have you on. I've always regarded you as a friend and an inspiration, and you've taught me a ton uh, just through your writing and also just through your direct influence when we're in the boat together. And uh, I want to thank you for being a, a contributor to the Flyline podcast today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to do it. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion, and thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. A new Flyline Podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays, so be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, this is Michael Jones. Flyline Podcast is a product of Riverside FM.